All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for every single person that is here, Lord. We thank you for your grace. I thank you, Lord, for the commitment of these people to come here and gather before your throne and hear your word, Lord. I pray that you may strengthen me, Lord. I pray that the words that I speak today may be words that you use, Lord. And my words are ordinary, Lord, but your word is powerful and mighty, Lord. And I pray that you uh, use it to change our lives today, Lord, and that when we leave today that we may be different, Lord. Um, I thank you for uh, your grace, Lord, and I pray for the Holy Spirit and a special anointing for today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, this here before I start. Okay. Now, I know that um, last Sunday's service, Pastor Bolden said that that was going to be the last sermon on the series of the scriptures. We've been talking about the scriptures for the last couple of weeks. We just got finished with the book of Hebrews. And typically what we do is that we, tend, we go through a book of the Bible at a time. We preach through a whole book of the Bible. And uh, after Hebrews, and I guess on our way to the next book of the Bible, we did a series on the scriptures. We talked about what, what are the scriptures and, and so forth. So um, I'm going to do one more sermon today about the scriptures. I know last time was supposed to be the last one, but I'm going to, uh, I guess, usurp authority a little bit and risk church discipline, but I'm going to do one more um, on the scriptures because what I want to answer is the question is why, why this is so important for us to have as a church group to have a high view of the Word of God. Why, why, what, you know, we, we're Christians, all Christians believe in the Bible, but why is it particularly important for a church, a, a local body, to have a high view of God's Word? Uh, why, should be, why it should be central? And um, the truth is that there's always been a battle for the Bible. The Word of God all the way in Genesis 3, right? You go all the, way, all the way back to the garden and God speaks to Adam and Eve and tells them you can have fruit from any of these trees, but except for this particular tree, right? And immediately the serpent shows up and says, God really didn't say that. So from the beginning, God's word is questioned. And right off from Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, God's word uh, comes under scrutiny by the serpent. So from the very beginning, there's been this battle for, for the Bible. And when you look at the Christian church, since its inception, and you can see this in the Old Testament, particularly with Jesus. When Jesus starts preaching, most of what Jesus was doing was correcting misunderstandings of the Bible. The Pharisees took their traditions, and they took the Word of God, and they made up out of the Word of God their own traditions to didn't line up with the scriptures. So Jesus' ministry, a lot of it was correcting what they have misinterpreted about God's word. And when the early church sets out, um, the apostles themselves 
obviously during these times there wasn't a Bible like this, right? They, they had their manuscripts from the Old Testament and their, the apostles themselves are producing the Bible. They're writing the Bible. So their writings are coming under questioning also. So now the, 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 the Word of God as it was given to the apostles is being questioned. It's being, I mean, who are you guys? You know, we, we already have our scriptures. The Jews were telling them, you, you guys are coming up with these new revelations and all of that. So their, their ministry uh, came under questioning and the apostles were called to defend the, the, the teaching that was given to them by Christ himself. himself. They, they had to go out and defend God's word. And after the apostles died, the church that came after the apostles found themselves, you know, the, the apostles are gone and the leaders that were left from, from the apostles, many of them, we got their writings, uh, Polycarp, we have his writings, he was a disciple of the apostle John, etc. And what happened in their day was that, you know, again, the Bible was not handed down in this form to us, the, the letters that were written to the apostles by the apostles, were taken by people and copied, hand copied, or translated in some cases to whatever languages, and they were passed on to different churches. And as, as this is all happening, there's a group of people that are coming in from the East. Um, they call themselves the Gnostics, or we call them the Gnostics. They didn't call themselves that. But basically, they, what they did is they, they took all different types of belief systems from the pagan world and they started kind of mishmashing it with the Christian teachings and they began even producing their own writings which they would claim were from some apostles. And we find those today, you know, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas, you know, all these different fraudulent writings were being spread around the different places in the Roman world. And that the reason why it's so confusing, because in those days, there's no telephone, internet, communications. It's word of mouth. It takes a long time. So you can have a church here, and all of a sudden, maybe they'll have the, little, the epistle of Romans. That's all the writings that they have from the apostles, right? They haven't had any of the others. So here comes some new writing, claiming to be a writing from the apostles. But in it, there's a bunch of teaching that is nowhere in scriptures, as we know today, it's, it's, it's pagan myths mixed in with Christianity. What the Gnostics taught, the word Gnostic comes from the word gnosis, which means to know. And basically, they believed that they had hidden knowledge that they got directly from God. And they had different views, but mainly they believed, and one, one thing they believed was the material world, like this physical world, was evil, right? But the spiritual world was good. So because of that, they believed that the God, now the word God, they didn't have the concept that we have of a concrete person. God was the thing out there. Well, the God, the thing out there, didn't create this world because this world is evil. There's another being that he created who was a lesser God, who was evil, who created the world. Okay. Because of that, the God sends Jesus, but Jesus is not flesh. See, they taught that God could not become flesh because flesh is what? 
is evil, right? So they taught that Jesus, some of them thought that Jesus looked like a man, but he was like a ghost. Uh, you couldn't touch him. He was immaterial. Or that the God possessed, like a demon possession, the God possessed a man called Jesus, and that man called Jesus went around teaching, and when he got caught and, and, and crucified, the God went back to heaven, and Jesus died and was buried. That's what they taught. Now, you can see this, and if you, if you read the book of 1 John, it says what we have seen, what we have touched, what we have seen, we're all... John is writing against that type of teaching that was already infiltrating the church. Now, these were men who called themselves Christians. These were not, you know, they were Christians. They, we believe in Jesus. We believe in an immaterial, different, completely different Jesus that you believe in, but it's Jesus. So the, the, the early church, from the beginning... It's called now to defend not only the Word of God, because we have to, they have to filter out all the weird different Gospels, right? And then, and then, you know, preserve the writings that we now have in the New Testament. But they're also, the first 300 years of the church was, they were hatching out the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the, the doctrine of who God is. Almost all of their writings, you can, you can go through their writings, they're defending God as a person and defending Jesus Christ as God and defending the Trinity. So from the beginning, again, from the earlier stages of the Christian church, God's Word was attacked and there was a battle for the Word of God. After the 300 years, the first 300 years of Christianity, that we move into what is known as the Middle Ages of the medieval world, the Word of God was, uh, we finally had it in some complete form. Problem was is that nobody had access to it. For almost a thousand years, God's Word sat in a pulpit in a language that nobody spoke, Latin, unless he was an educated person. And for a thousand years, in Europe and in the church, Christians could not understand or hear God's Word. Now, think of that. Think of you go to church every Sunday, you hear a preaching, you hear a sermon, you go home, you think about it or whatnot, or you can go home and search the scriptures. Well, for a thousand years, that wasn't possible. You would go to church, a man stood up, he spoke in Latin, you had no idea what he said, and then you went home. And that was the Christian life for a thousand years. In fact, when my, when my mom, still in the Catholic church, when my mom was a little girl, the mass was in Latin in Puerto Rico. Nobody knew what they were saying. They'd just go and go home afterwards. So we finally, the battle for the Bible was won in the early church, but then we had the problem that it was not available to people. And instead, the church uh, developed their own traditions and their own uh, interpretations of what they said the Bible was or the, what the Bible said, but nobody can verify, nobody can look in and see if this is what is true because nobody had access to God's Word. Now there's, obviously in those days there was no printing, right? So they, they you know, producing a Bible took about a year because it was hand copied. But it was, a, it was a period of darkness because nobody had access to God's Word. So in a way, it was an attack of the Bible. It was an attack on God's Word because we're keeping it from people. We're, 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 we're muting God's Word. 
And this happened for a thousand years. So generation after generation after generation after generation for a thousand years, men were lost without any words from God. When we get into the um, early periods of the Reformation, one of the battles of the Reformation was the battle again for the Bible. And the reformers, like Martin Luther, began to produce God's Word translated into German, which was the language where he was at in Germany. And um, he began to uh, uh, do his translation into German. Immediately, the Roman church said, that's illegal, you can't do that. And the same thing happened in Spain, the same thing happened in England. Men began producing or translating God's Word into their languages, and the Roman Catholic Church began persecuting them. And anybody caught with a Bible in their language would be put to death, burn at the stake, actually. It will burn you at the stake. Um, Martin Luther was never, fortunately, because of where he was, but William Tyndale and others who produced the English Bibles were burned at the stake. Uh, I mean, you imagine that? They, take, they walk you out, they tie you to a piece of wood, and they set fire on you. They leave you there for about two or three hours that you finally burn for translating God's Word to a language that people could understand. And this is being done to you by a church that calls itself the Church of the Living God. And this was what's going on for hundreds of years. People's crimes were translating God's Word. We said the Reformers, what they said was, you know, these traditions, these things that the church is teaching us, they're not found in the Bible. So the Bible, that was, that was one of the uh, slowness of, of the Reformation was sola scriptura. Only the Bible has the authority to bind your conscience. None of these teachings from the church, none of these traditions of men can bind your consciences. See, the church was selling indulgences. An indulgence is, as the word suggests, let's say you, um, you're planning on sinning next week. You're going to get drunk. You can buy an indulgence from the Roman church. You can go up to them and say, I want to buy an indulgence, which is a future forgiving of that sin that you're going to commit. You could literally buy this. And they went all over Europe selling indulgences. There was, there was, if you've sinned, you can buy forgiveness. You know, the Pope has the authority to forgive. The church has the authority to forgive. You can buy forgiveness. If you have family members who died in sin and find themselves in purgatory, you can buy indulgences to forgive them of their sins. So all over Europe, men were going around telling people, your family members are in purgatory, and they're suffering. And here you are spending your money and other things in life when you can just buy indulgences. Why would you do that? Why are you so selfish? I mean, that's guilt, right? Your family members are in purgatory. They're on their way to hell. But you can buy them indulgences so they can work their way up to heaven. That's nowhere in the Bible. But for a thousand years, who knew any better? So the reformer said, God's word alone has the authority to bind your conscience. Not the teachings of men, but God's word alone. But in order for God's word, 
to bind your conscience, you must understand it. You must read it. In order to read it, you must understand it. So it needs to be made available to you. So in the Reformation, the battle, again, it was a battle for the Bible. So we're going 1,600 years, battle after battle after battle, and the Bible never gets a break. It's always a battle is won, another battle is fought. And there's always men and women that have to stand up and defend God's word from the attacks of the world. Um, the, uh, I was reading some of the men who were burned at the stake for translating the Bible, and something I found interesting was that a lot of those men became like martyrs, and people, uh, you know, saw them as encouraging, you know. But the women were never burned publicly. It was indecent. You can burn a woman, but it's indecent to burn her publicly because, you know, the clothes will burn or whatever. So they were burned in lairs and prisons in the dark, you know, away from people that, that couldn't see them, right? And, and the women, we don't even know how many of them were burned or killed during that period because there was no record of it. They were not made martyrs. They, they died in darkness and nobody saw them. Nobody could even say, what a woman of God. She died for her faith because nobody saw that. So we don't even know the numbers of women that were burned for reading maybe the Gospel of John in Spanish when it wasn't allowed or, or whatsoever. And that's what the Roman church did that for hundreds of years. The, the Roman Catholic church that your friend goes to 400 years ago would have burned us for having this, this Bible with us. That's why the reformers were, were very, 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 very anti-Catholic. They hated the Pope. They called the Pope the Antichrist. And still to this day, I believe that a true Christian would, would look at that institution and, and in no way would see that as something of God. I mean, there's, there's, there's no more Antichrist office in the world than the office of the papacy. The Pope calls himself the vicar of Christ and the head of the church. That's what the Bible calls Jesus. The Pope calls himself the vicar of Christ and the head of the church. A man who dies and has to be replaced is the head of the church, they say. I mean, if that's not Antichrist, I don't know what it is. If, that not, if, that's, if that's not the devil's joke, I don't know what it is. So the, um, the Word of God, once again, during the Reformation, there was a battle for the Bible, the battle for the authority of Scripture, the battle of what is it that we're going to live our lives by, what is it that we're going to fight for, what is it that we're going to die for, and it's God's Word. It was a battle for the Bible. After the Reformation, by, by, the, by the 1600s, finally, um, God's Word was made available. Uh, the King James was translated in 1611, the the Spanish Bible was translated first in 1569 and then in 1602, and, and by the 1600s you had God's Word was available to people. Unfortunately for us, the Spanish Bible was, um, the Spanish Inquisition was still going on until about the 1800s. We didn't even have access to our Bible in Spanish until the 20th century. Our people couldn't even read the Bible until about the 20th century. The Roman Church again. 
But by the time you get to the 1600s in Europe, you know, the, the church is established. Um, the Word of God is made available. Uh, breath of fresh air, right? But what happened after the Reformation was that now that the Bible was available in Europe, began a period known as the Enlightenment. During the Enlightenment, men thought that, you know, before we looked for the truth outside of ourselves, up in the sky somewhere, up in the gods or somewhere. When it comes to the Enlightenment, now we have science, now we have reason, now we have our own minds, and we, can, we ourselves can look for the truth. We don't need anything else. So God's Word, once again, immediately after it was made available, is now being questioned and the higher critics, and this is seminaries all over Europe, Christian seminaries, New Testament scholars started questioning the, the authorship of some of the books. Maybe Leviticus was not written by Moses. It was written by another man. Or Jesus didn't really, you know, it's, I mean, science tells us that a man can resurrect from the dead, right? So that's impossible. So Jesus maybe died. He was a good teacher. He was a good man. There was no virgin birth. All these things started to be questioned. Thomas Jefferson, the... Uh, founding father actually took a Bible, Bible and literally took a knife and he started cutting off all the parts of the Bible that were supernatural that you couldn't explain by science so he took off all the he completely took off the entire Old Testament um, and then he got rid of everything else except for the Gospels and then he took the Gospels and he caught off all the miracles that Jesus did and he caught off the resurrection because that can't happen he caught off the, and he produced his own Bible he called it the, uh, the Morals and Life of Jesus of Nazareth. It was 82 pages. That's all, he, that's all he thought was worthy in the Bible. So during this period, again, the Bible began to be questioned, began to be, come under scrutiny, and the, the higher critics began to question. This, these are New Testament scholars, meaning these are Christians from Christian seminaries and universities. And that whole movement um, gave us what is known as liberal Protestantism. By the time you get to the 20th century in America, we get a controversy, uh, whereas these type of ideas started getting into the churches in America and the different denominations and different people, different leaders began to look at these, you know, look at, uh, for example, evolution <coughs> and look at all these scientific findings and they said to themselves, you know, the Christian faith is good to have good morals, it's good to have good values, but obviously the idea that <clears throat> Christ had to die for our sins, that's it's kind of like an old myth, you know, the idea that um, uh, Christ was born out of a virgin, that's kind of like a myth. So we can get rid of these um, Christian doctrines, but keep the, the fluffy stuff, right? The, the good stuff about, you know, the, the being a good person or, or the golden rule, etc. If we can keep those things, um, we could uh, uh, still be Christians, still be a church, but we have like, kind of like a 20th century modern Christianity. That's basically what they came up with. And obviously there were others that stood up and said, no, we're, we have to defend those teachings. We have to defend those essential doctrines. We have to defend those fundamentals. 
So the men, <clears throat> the men who did that were called fundamentalists. Um, the fundamentalists were the one who defended God's word. In the liberal churches, um, there was a split that happened, and obviously the, the liberal churches became the mainline Protestant churches, and the other ones became the evangelical churches. But once again, another generation goes by, another generation comes in, God's word is questioned, somebody has to stand up and defend the truth at the expense of popularity, at the expense of reputation. Somebody has to stand up and defend God's word because God's word is always going to be under attack. So if you don't defend it, it's going to be under attack. So all the way from the beginning, that's why I'm telling you this kind of overview, because from the beginning to our day-to-day, the Bible has been constantly under attack without any break. And generation of men and women had to stand up for the truth of God's word. So when you get to the 70s, when you get to the 80s, when you get to the seeker-sensitive, the purpose-driven life movement, what you get is you get all of those things that I just told you about. We can't just go out and preach God's word simply, right? Because people don't want to hear that. We need to bring the people in. We need to attract them in. We need to do whatever it is that we can do. We, we can't just tell people that there is a hell. That sin leads you to hell. Because that's offensive to our culture. So we could simply work away around those things so we can, as a result, you know, bring the people in and give them the nice message that Jesus loves them, which is basically liberalism, pretty much. So we're, we're here in this generation, you and I. We got 2,000 years behind us of men who've died men who gave their lives, their reputation, these men that, I, that you can look, they, we look at them now and we think they were great men, but in their day, they weren't, they, they, they weren't popular. Nobody cared for them. Some of them died, and it was 100 years after they died when somebody found their writings and said, oh, this is amazing stuff, and they became popular after they died. But they, pray, they paid the price in their day. They were willing to... to give away their reputation, in some cases their own lives, for what they understood to be true. Because God's word, see, God's, it's, it's not that God's word needs to be defended. It's that, you know, you, you don't have to defend a lion, right? You just, you just let him loose and the lion does what it does. But we are called as a church to proclaim God's word and to proclaim it faithfully. So, the church to be the church needs to have as, at the center of their being the proclamation of God's word. As faithful and as simply as we can proclaim it in whatever way we can, that should be the center of a church. So when, when you build a church, when you want to start a church, you need to build from there up. It's not an afterthought. Because by the time, if it's an afterthought, it's already too late. Don't start a church. You have a, you're starting a group or a, or a club or, or, or something. So, <clears throat> with that introduction, let's go to 1 Corinthians. 1 <laughs> Corinthians, I want to do something real quick. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul himself did ministry, how the Apostle Paul himself um, 
uh, proclaim God's word. Now remember, remember what the issue is always. The issue is always God's word cannot just simply be proclaimed, right? People get offended by it. People don't care about the proclamation of God's word. We need to find some other way to bring people in. The Gnostics were doing, they were taking the pagan teachings and mixing it because that's what it was. In the old days, culture was whatever pagan religion you had. That's who you were as a person. So they were taking all of that and mingling with Christian teaching. What they were doing is they were obscuring God's word. When the Catholic Church in the medieval period, they flatly muted God's word. The reformist battle was to to, to, to take away all the, the bandages that were obscuring God's word and just let God's word shine. That was what the reformers were doing. When, when the liberals came in, again, they were just taking science and reason and they were just, just obscuring once again and, and, and muffling God's word. See? Because God, it's, 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 in, it's in the obscuring of God's word. You can do that from the pulpit. You can stand in the pulpit and preach and cover God's word to the point that it doesn't have any effect. You can do that from the pulpit. So Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, verse, um, verse 18. Let's start with verse 18. Paul says, For the word of God, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, verse 20, where is the one who is wise, where is the scribe, where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. The Jews demand a sign. The Greeks seek wisdom. Notice the narrative of the cultures. Paul knew the people he was preaching to. You, he, know, he knew their needs. He knew what they wanted. The Jews wanted miraculous signs, wonders, healings, and all those things. The Greeks wanted philosophy and wisdom. Verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly to Gentiles. I know what they want. I know what they're looking for. I preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block and foolishness to them. So Paul is laying it out on the line. I know what they're looking for. I can very easily come and do some you know, manipulating of the truth to bring him in. But instead, they want miracles. I'll give him a stumbling block. They want wisdom. I give him foolishness. Because I preach Christ crucified, which is the power of God. The world needs power. It doesn't need decisions. It, does, it needs power. We don't need good morals. We need power. And the preaching of God's word is where his power is. Chapter 2 is one of my favorites. I like this verse because sometimes when I'm called to preach, it's like I'm, I'm nervous. But then I read this, and it's like, oh, that's not that bad. Because here Paul says, look at chapter 2. He says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible with words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That was Paul's ministry. Jesus told the, uh, I think it was in Mark chapter 12, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you, you're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures and the power of God. They read the Scriptures, but they didn't know the Scriptures, and therefore they had not the power of God. We need God's power. The church needs God's power. How does the church um, release and unleashes God's powers by proclaiming His Word? And as plainly and as truthfully as it can. When I, when I, was, when I got saved in 2005, um, the, the whole thing around the time when I got saved was this whole, the, the whole purpose-driven church thing that was happening. And one of the things that they were always saying was, you know, back in the day, yeah, you can just go up and preach and all that, but we live in a different time nowadays. You know, we have a different generation, so we cannot just go out and, and do that anymore, right? This generation is different, and uh, we have to... There was a lot of emphasis on, on coming up with different ways of, of doing ministry. And, and one of the ways was to come up with a, you, you got to get a good title for your sermon, right? You got to kind of catch them, right? You got to get a new, something that rhymes, right? You know, uh, because, because that's what attracts people, right? You know, you, you know, you can't, you know, go out there and say, today we're going to preach on hellfire, you burn or something. You got to come up with a good sermon to, to catch him because you don't want to turn him away. Nobody has ever, no, nobody has ever listened to God's word without first being offended by it. God's word has always been offensive because we're human beings. We're sinful. God's word is pure. We, we've always been offended by God's Word. God's Word has always come to people in a way that it produces a offense. What do you mean I'm sinful? What do you mean I'm, you know, I should be punished for my sin? That goes against our nature. We're, we're good people, right? And We're good in this country. We're good Americans. Here comes a man telling me that I'm sinful, that everything that I do is sinful, that God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who, who, who cover the, um, their unrighteousness and their sin. God's wrath, that's not... We don't, that doesn't make a nice sermon. And the men who proclaimed God's word were willing to overcome all of that like Paul did. He, he, he decided not to know nothing. He threw away all of his wisdom, but he preached Christ crucified, which was offensive to the people that he was preaching to. But to those who were being called, both of Jews and of Greeks, Christ, the power of God. The, um, one of the most moving scenes in, Acts, um, in the Bible, I guess, is in Acts chapter 20. Um, in fact, you should go there. 
don't know why I always read this when I'm depressed for whatever reason. But Acts chapter 20, verse 17, what's happening here is the Apostle Paul is kind of going towards the last chapter of his ministry. He knows that, you know, he's at the end of his ministry, which to him means probably death or, or martyrdom or something like that. So on his way to Jerusalem, he, uh, he calls the elders from Ephesus. Paul ministered in Ephesus longer than anywhere else. He, he was there for three years. So he calls them because he wants to see them one last time. And in, in verse 17, chapter 20, verse 17, uh, Luke is the one writing here. He says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. When they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set food in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the blood of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value, nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to preach the gospel of the grace of God. Now behold, I know that none of you among who I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I am innocent from the blood of all men. We may have blood in our hands and we don't know. I shrink not from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul said at the end of his ministry, he says, my hands are clean. I, I did not leave anything out. I preached to you the whole counsel of God. I gave to you all of the word of God. I am free from the blood of all men. If any man rejects this truth, that's on him. But I'm not going to have blood on my hands because I was too afraid to be unpopular, to give him the truth that he needed. I am free from his blood. That's Paul's view of ministry. That's why he can go very easily knowing that he's going to face death. Paul wasn't afraid of dying. All throughout the book of Acts, he says, you know, if you find something that I did wrong, I, I, hey, I'll go down, and if I have to die, I have to die. Because Paul knew, you know, Paul didn't have anything that he left out. His conscience was clean. His hands were clean. He gave, he preached the word of God faithfully and, and powerfully. And those who reject it is on them. Our job is not to gain members in the sense that that's what our focus is going to be. 
Our focus is to proclaim God's word, and then God will add to the church as he sees fit. So the, the ministry of the New Testament is the faithful teaching and preaching of God's word. And God himself, who is the one who saves men, we can't save people. We can, we can manipulate people into thinking that they made some decision. But salvation is not, it's, it's, a, it's an act of God. It's a work of God. God saves. And he saves through his word as it's preached. And as his word is preached and God saves, then he adds to the church. And if he doesn't add to the church, we still proclaim God's word faithfully. Because at the end, one of the reasons this is important is because this battle, like I said, it, the Bible does not depend on us to defend it. It defends itself. But at the end of the day, which side of the battle are we going to be on? Because one side has been twisting, muting, omitting God's word from the beginning, and another side has been proclaiming it. And at the end of the day, when everything is written, when the books are shot, which side are we going to be on? That's why this is important. There's a lot of churches in America and throughout the world that don't understand that one day you're going to be shown which side you were on. And Jesus said, whoever is with me, is, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever, whoever does not uh, sow, he scatters. So may God forbid that we're ever, as a church or even in our lives, even as, as with our children, that we are people who scatter. Because God's word, you know, we, we, ministries come up and go. I mean, you, you look at the history of the church, you see ministries that people don't even know they exist today, but in their day they were huge, they were big. There was a man I was reading, Harry Emerson Fosdick. The most influential religious leader in America is Harry Emerson Fosdick. You've never heard of him. He pastored Riverside uh, Church in New York, up in Manhattan. He was a liberal preacher. Denied the, vir the, the, the virgin birth, believed in evolution. Very influential. His church was built by John D. Rockefeller. He, John D. Rockefeller printed his sermons and spread them all over America. In his day, he was the biggest preacher. But he died. And so his, his group, his followers, you know, the church is still there, but his people scattered. There were men in his day that were not big in his day, but we know them today. Men like Tozer, same time period. See, the words of men, they, they die off after a while, but the Word of God continues on forever. So we may not be popular or big in our day, but, you know, after we're gone, what is it going to be left? And if it's not built upon God's Word, it's going to go away. It's going to fall apart when a man dies. It goes with him. God's Word remains forever. So did. The reason why it's important for us to have a high view of Scripture, it's number one is the Bible is always under attack and we're called to proclaim it. The Bible is also, um, 
the means by which God saves people. It opens their heart. It opens their mind. Um, I think it was, was it last Sunday service that Olu preached in Timothy, which says that um, they sh- in, in the last days, um, they will no longer endure sound doctrine. You ever heard of that verse before? A time will come when they will no longer endure sound doctrine. One thing I always found interesting, you don't get this in the English, but in the Spanish Bible, that word endure, in Spanish it, it, it says suffering, sufrirán, sana doctrina. They will not suffer healthy doctrine. And I always found interesting, why, why do you have to suffer healthy doctrine? See, we, we as human beings like sound doctrine as much as disease likes medicine. Sound doctrine always grains against your nature. It goes against you. It has to kill you a little every time. It has to kill you a little every time. That's why it's offensive to the world. Because the world, by nature, we want to live. We want to exalt. Here comes sound doctrine, which is good, against us who are evil. And it grains. It, it hurts. It, it kills a little. And a time will come when people are not going to no longer endure that. So... This is important because we must understand that what may be offensive to some people is actually the medicine that is going to heal them at the long run. That's why this is important. And the last and most important reason is because one day, when everything is done, we will give an account. And we're going to be on one side of the battle or on the other side of the battle. God forbid that we ever are on the wrong side of the battle. So we're called to be faithful um, proclaimers of God's word in our families, in the church, at home, with your friends. Um, We're called to be proclaimers of God's word. Um, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for... Um, your Holy Spirit, Lord. I, I pray, Lord, that you give us a passion for your word, Lord. I pray that you, um, every day, Lord, you may increase our hunger for your word, Lord, and for your scriptures, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you may guide us to whatever resources are, are proper, Lord, for us to understand your word, Lord. I pray that uh, as we mature as a group or, or a church, Lord, that, that we always have in view a high um, valley of God's word, Lord, that we never, um, never get carried with the currents of the times, Lord, and that we may always understand that your word is it's, it's, it's mighty, it's powerful, Lord, that, that your word is the one that saves us, that sanctifies us, Lord, and one day will glorify us, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you may continue to work in our lives and every family here, Lord, and those who are not here with us today, Lord, that that you also give them a passion and a hunger for their word, Lord. And I thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. And I thank you for every person who is here. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, somebody doing the prayer request or I'm doing prayer request? Okay. Uh, let me stop you. <laughs>